Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today is my great joy and honor to talk to Joel Asas, somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. Hey, Joel. Amen. Hey, so why don't you uh, sort of introduce yourself um, to, our, to our audience and just sort of say you know, who you are, what you're about? Okay, so um, that's, uh, that's always a real comfortable thing to have to do. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, could I have just written like a little, you know, you know, forty-word bio in the back of an index card, and you could have read it. Anyway, yeah, I mean, because it's hard to talk about yourself, right? I mean, it's, that's that's at least for me. But uh, my name is Joel Asa Miller. I actually have a last name, but I use just on Facebook, which is how you mostly know me. Although we did meet yeah. at a friend's party. Um, I just, I dropped the last name, uh, cause I was working for some people who, uh, I didn't think that exactly approve of my political views. So it was, I was, I just, uh, you know, thought maybe I could confuse my identity a little bit, um, <laughs> but they discovered it anyway, you know, they discovered that at, anyway, cause it was the, two, the 2012, um, election of, uh, presidential election. And, um, I'm not, I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican, but, um, I certainly wasn't supporting, uh, and I, yeah, I certainly wasn't supporting uh, their guy who was, um, what's his name, Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and so when they figured that out, they decided I was, you know, uh, I was suspect anyway, you know. And I just I, I quit that job after five months because it was it was like uh, it was like mental torture. Basically, I was I was doing the um, marketing for a company that does. Uh, um, windows and doors and um it's really it's really actually hard to market windows and doors unbranded generic windows and doors so you know so i i i i, I left that gig <laughs> well i i guess one of the main reasons that i really wanted to have you on is that you are this uh this sort of really old school kind of left-wing organizer <laughs> who actually who you know it's kind of an unreconstructed lefty of the old school that does not buy any of this obama kumbaya we can all we're all in this together like a real kind of person who has that that view that i grew up with in working class montreal where it's the conflict theory that you don't get anything people don't give you your freedom. They don't give you your rights. You have to get out there, get in their face, and 
force people to actually give you what you deserve and what you, and that, and, and this idea that, um, you know, you part of the process of organizing and part of the process, very Saul Alinsky kind of view that, um, that you have to actually, uh, fire people up and you have to cut through these various kinds of stories that people are told about, uh, the certain kinds of togetherness, which really just conceal uh, a lot of conflict and everything. And so that's, I find that very interesting because I, you know, I actually just kind of perfect timing that we're talking today. I just, uh, this afternoon with lunch, I was uh, listening with my wife to, um, Ezra Klein's podcast and his most recent one is a, a interview with Barack Obama and Ezra Klein oh. just says to him he says you know, and he, and he's being really respectful and cool about it he wasn't being a dick about it because you know he's former president and he's got him on his podcast but like he's also he, wicked smart you know Barack, yes he's yeah no fool you know oh exactly and, and he said to him he goes you know don't you think maybe uh you pushed the uh, this idea that you have to empathize with the other side and have to kind of try and understand people. Don't you think that by doing that, you in many ways um, actually gave an opening for the Republican Party to become much more um, strident and much less moderate than they even were? And anyway, so it was a very, very interesting. And I thought, well, yeah, that's kind of what Joel's been saying for a long time now. So Ooh. I'm wondering, yeah, like, what do you what do you think about that? All that? What is the best way forward for people that want a piece of the action in our society? Well, first of all, like, I mean, it's, it's not just like, I, I don't know, it's very weird to be characterized as an old school leftist, because when I think of old school leftists, I think of uh, people who were, say, organizing the CIO in the 1930s or organizing... Uh, um, you know, the Paris Commune or something like that in 1848, right? Or, or like, but, you know, Frederick Douglass, who I wouldn't categorize as a, you know, any kind of traditional leftist. I mean, he wasn't a Marxist or anything like that. Um, and, you know, he didn't come out of, uh, you know, like a labor, well, slavery is a labor, I guess, like, you know, it, it has to do with labor in a serious way, but he didn't come out of that particular tradition of organized labor. But he said, uh, you know, power concedes nothing without a demand. So that's that's it, that's pretty, you know, conflictual, right? Or that's at least understanding that there's an adversarial relationship, that that adversarial relationships have to be, you know, resolved or addressed in, you know, in a in a way that doesn't necessarily smooth over con conflicts, but actually, you know, um, you know, brings them out and allows those conflicts to unfold. So um, yeah, I mean that's. Uh, you know, I, I, I pretty much believe that. I don't think society moves forward without conflict. I don't think that human relationships of any kind, you know, even intimate relationships move forward without some conflict. Um, that's, you know, the nature that just, that's just, I don't like to say the nature of things, but I mean, that is kind of the dialectic, right? That's, uh, that drives, um, you know, human activity uh, in, I don't know about forward, but at least in some direction. It's funny that you say that that phrase that this is uh, the nature of things, right? Because I've actually, I'm just, uh, I'm almost done with Suzanne Stimard's book, uh, Finding the Mother Tree. This is probably one of the most anticipated books in science to come out since 2000. So she basically, while she's still a graduate student in the mid 1990s, 
she publishes this paper. It becomes the front page article in Nature. It, she's been nominated for a Nobel Prize. It's like it has completely changed. She's the one who is really uh, interesting. Yeah, I discovered the, the the wood wide web and things like that. She right. took twenty, you know, twenty four years to actually come out with a book based on this research. And she talks mm-hmm. in the book about why that is the case. But one of the reasons why it took her so long is she came out with this uh, with this study de- proving, like, definitively that actually the major uh, animating force within a forest is not competition for scarce resources and conflict, but is actually cooperation. And that even, even trees and plants that seem to be competing with each other are at the very same time cooperating in, in all sorts of massive ways. And that actually the biggest thing that life on earth is usually competing against is the elements It's cold, hot, dry, uh, wet is, you know, that radiation. But that, but that is, if I can interrupt you for a second, but that is those, that is a conflict. Okay. Even if the trees band together in some way, and I haven't read the book, I did catch an interview of her on, uh, on Vermont Public Radio, and she's very interesting. And I do want to read her book, but uh, you know, the uh, if the response to the trees is to cooperate, okay, that's like uh, workers responding to say, uh, you know, a um, an oppressive boss through cooperation, through forming a union and going on strike. I mean, there's there's ways that people cooperate in order to deal with the conflict in their circumstances. So I don't really see that that's necessarily incompatible. I mean, you have. Um, the conflict in that case is trees versus the environment, trees versus heat, trees versus radiation, trees versus, uh, you know, lack of water or too much water. I mean, that's where, you know, that's that there's the conflict, right? Yeah, no, well, they, her, her point was that part of the reason why it took her so long to actually come out with the book was she got just totally, totally attacked um, when it came out because immediately in polarized times, People just, it's like, you know, Soviet art or something. It's like everything has to be political. And if you say you're not political, well, then you're fucking suspect, you know, right away. Because, like, we know everybody's got an angle. And so immediately she got attacked by a bunch of people. And she said at first she thought the critiques were based in the science. And then she realized, whoa, like, I'm actually stepping on a bunch of toast. So a bunch of libertarian free market ideologues attacked her and said oh what's right. this fucking commie bullshit you know it's, it's, this is really just a stalking horse for you know socialism okay. or communism right. because you're you're trying to say that cooperation is the is the real kind of way that life works on earth but then she goes at the same time she also got attacked by uh by people on the left who are really enamored with conflict theory and thinks that you know without you know as as you rightly uh, quoted frederick Douglass, you know without struggle there is no uh, progress and everything and so she got attacked by people who who were saying that this was a stalking horse critique of identity politics and of interest group politics and of like the conflict view of society well, and that well, but, but and, see, and, and she said you know i'm not actually saying any of those things i'm talking about forests <laughs> What's wrong right, with but, people? but here's the, here's the thing if you i mean i think i i mean i haven't read the book so i can't and i only had heard that one interview so i really i'm not great about responding specifically to what she's saying but um but here's here's my response to some of that one as i said um conflict drives things creates motion and drives things 
in a direction. So in this case, the conflict is not necessarily the, co the cooperation of the trees, but the conflict of the trees with the environment. So that's that's the di that's the dialectic that's going that's at least you know sort of moving this thing forward. So secondly, there is no contradiction between cooperation, the idea of cooperation, and uh, say the ideas of um, you know working class solidarity. As a matter of fact, solidarity, which is the key to you know to say any working class movement or anti racist movement or, or anything of that of that nature, is absolutely the only thing that works. It, the only thing that works is solidarity in terms of, you know, um, developing uh, social movements that are meaningful and that actually, um, you know, create, you know, create results. So I don't see any contradiction. I also don't see any contradiction from a bourgeois, you know, capitalist perspective. I mean, I've done a lot of work in business, you know. Um, I, you know, I've run businesses, I've worked for businesses, I pretty much, I understand business pretty well. And there's a ton of cooperation among businesses within, you know, between businesses, they call them partnerships and there's, and there's cooperation within businesses in order to, for those businesses to be able to compete. So I don't, you see, this is the problem when people sort of like paint themselves into these corners of like, well, you know, I believe in this sort of conflict theory versus this cooperative theory, you know, it kind of falls apart. Um, and that's, you know, in, it went uh, upon closer examination and, you know, I don't really, you know, we get stuck in these theoretical conversations that don't necessarily really, you know, get us anywhere. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's an excellent point, and that's actually Nassim Nichols Taleb is that is always his big critique of a lot of libertarian uh, free market ideologues. Is he says that you know these people talk about business like somebody who is has a job as an economics professor at some like you've clearly never been in business, you've never run a business because he goes if you had, you would know that your model of how capitalism works or how it is so how markets work is so theoretical and detached and is not how things actually work on the ground. And in fact, you know, as you, you rightly observe that it usually there's a massive amount of cooperation and a lot of trust that happens between people in business to make business work. Right. So no, that that's, that's a hundred percent correct. I, I guess it's, the problem is that, you know, when I was growing up, the activist people like you know David Fenario, the playwright and stuff like that, uh, who I he was like a, like a just a real figure in my neighborhood growing up in Verdun. Like he was a character, and he he just he was always kind of like you know pounding his fist on the table and taking another swig of beer. And, you know we've never really tried communism, and like he was, but he he had an analysis and he was a really interesting, charismatic guy but one of the things that he he would always say is that oh you know these divisions that we have based on language you know english french or these, these racial divisions these are all like this is all fake this is stuff that's created by the bourgeoisie to kind of keep workers divided and he, he'd say the only real thing is class and everything else is ephemeral, is bullshit, whether you're male, female, whether you're, you know, and in that sense, I remember I said this to him once, and he got very mad at me, but he thought it was funny because I was a little kid and I was smiling. But I said, you know, you sound like a Christian, you sound like Jesus or like a Christian, you know, like, you know, like when St. Paul says in the New Testament, 
in in Christ Jesus, there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I said, you're, you're basically making like, like a Christian argument. And then he got mad and then he came, you know, I, to his credit, he came back like a week later and he said, you know, I've been giving it a lot of thought. And I think basically Marxism is uh, secular Christianity. He goes in many ways, like that's, he goes, that's, that's, in, that's interesting. I mean, there's a, um, there's a whole bunch of, uh, I mean, the original Sandinistas were mostly uh, um, pretty religious Catholics. Um, you know, uh, they were, you know, they were part of that movement that Thomas Merton liberation theology movement um, you know, the Catholic workers in the United States. I mean, I worked with a lot of them back in the day. Um, we're all pretty, uh, pretty militant uh, labor activists. Uh, a you know, dear friend of mine um, uh, who was the president of the St. Paul um, Ford UAW local um, and is one of the most courageous labor activists and human beings that I've ever met uh, is, a, you know, not a Marxist. He's, he is a Catholic and um, but very much driven by um, you know, sort of the the better parts of um, sort of Christian, um, you know, Christian Christian thought. You know, the parts that a lot of these evangelical right wingers like to jettison. You know, and I mean, there is a lot of stuff in Marxism that actually is, um, uh, you know, sort of reminiscent of say Judaism. I mean, there's like this kind of messianic side of it, uh, where the uh, working class you could, if you really want to get sort of you know, I, I I wouldn't swear, but I would, I'm not going to swear by this. But there is you know, the working the the working class as the avant garde of humanity sort of corresponds to the role of the Jewish people as the uh, as light of, the light of the nations who are supposed to bring about the um, the final redemption. So I mean, there are these parallels in religion, and you know, people you know people's political thought comes out of their um, you know their upbringing and their uh, you know the 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 sort of uh, water in which they in which they've been swimming in. And so, yeah, I mean, I, there are definitely parallels. And I think, you know, like Che Guevara said, uh, was quoted as saying, or maybe I'll have to paraphrase this, but uh, that the true revolutionary is motivated by deep feelings of love. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I mean, why bother, you know, why bother making all the sacrifices that people who are revolutionaries make? They usually get killed or thrown in jail or something and uh or tortured or driven crazy and so why bother to do that when you could just as easily you know trade pork bellies on the american on you know on the in the chicago board of trade or something you know what i mean yeah no there's a there's a great uh, article that uh, slavov zizek wrote in um uh, what article it was in the the I don't inter- like that guy's the communist yeah i don't i don't actually like him that much either but he did, but he wrote this fantastic article in the, the Communist International uh, newspaper. I think it was the International or the whatever. Anyway, it's called, it's called Soul of the Party. It's been a long time since I read it. But he, he says in there that, um, that you know, communists should not, um, socialists, and, and they shouldn't um, shy away from people who make the comparisons to uh, to Christianity, and he said, in in many ways, actually, the the soul of the party is the Christian message, and the whole idea of you know Jesus. His was he talking speech, about the communist? Was he talking about the communist party? Um, he was talking about in general the the sort of the, the communist 
slash uh, socialist project that he said the soul that the heart of its message was uh, you know Jesus saying at the when he uses famous kind of speech sermon on the mount where he says like you know the last shall be first the first shall be last mm-hmm. and that and you know blessed this whole idea of just completely inverting the social order to um, you know right now we talk about it usually with with derision um, as the oppression Olympics that, you know, everybody's sort of counting up their privilege points and seeing like how they, they rate, but Zizek's point, and I think it's actually a very good point is that this isn't actually that new. And it definitely is not something that comes with Marx, that this is right baked into the Christian project from day one, this idea of a, a total inversion of the social order. Well, yeah, I mean, you, there's, you, there's also like in, in, uh, you know, Marx came from a, from a, I guess, a long line of rabbis. And there's also this, this concept in, in Judaism that, um, uh, of that, uh, we live in an upside down world where the powerful are at the, this comes out of somewhere in the Gemara and the Talmud, uh, you know, where the powerful are, who are on top really should be on the bottom and the people on the bottom really should be on top. And, uh, that I guess at the time of the final redemption, the, the order will be flipped. There's also this interesting concept in there, which it hit me when you were talking, which is that um, the party, the concept of the party and the Stalinist concept, you know, the Stalinist concept of the party almost becomes like the Christian concept of the church. You know, like the way in, in Christianity they talk about the church is the body of Christ, you know, the, that carries this, um, I don't know, this uh, essential um, spiritual message. And I, I think that, in you know, in a sort of Stalinist concept, you know, concept of the party is kind of uh, some, some, some sense of that too. And, uh, and everybody is subservient, of course, to the party, uh, like the way I guess everybody's supposed to be subservient to the church. And then the other, th- the other thought I had about that is that there's, you know, Marx himself, like, um, was very sensitive. And I think maybe this had to do with the fact that he came from a rabbinical family, although he's also pretty much, he's kind of an anti-Semite as well. But uh, he had this quote, which everybody refers to, where, you know, where he says, um, you know, religion is the opium of the people. But that when you look at the longer quote, and you may know, I'm sure you, you know this actually, I may have actually wrote, written this on your Facebook page. Well, no, I'm aware of it, but our, our listeners may not be. So please, please yeah. proceed. <laughs> yeah, so he said, he said something to the effect, I don't know if I have it exactly right, but uh, he said, religion is spirit in a spiritless world. Religion is heart in a heartless world. Religion is the opium of the people. So he wasn't just saying that religion is there to dumb people down or to make them numb. Although it is, you know, he, there's definitely an idea of soothing in there. But it's that people need to have some sense of spiritual spirituality, some sense of connection, some sense of heart. You know. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. There's a there's a wonderful line in Susan Nyman's book, uh, Moral Clarity, where she says, she she gives the full quotation you're talking about from Marx, and she says, you know, uh, he's right on here, but she goes, I think he maybe got his drugs wrong, because it actually it's she said it's much more like cocaine than opium, like it actually it energizes people, it gives people like it's uh, it makes them feel you know, rightly or wrongly empowered and, and more chatty and more like, rah, you know, they want to like go. So she said that actually it's his, it's seen as being this 
like this real like ultimate diss on, on religion when in fact he it's high praise yeah within the context. yeah yeah he understands he has an empathetic view of the importance of religion to uh to oppressed and working class people you know and and i think that there's you know and if you look at the development of social movements um you know religion and religious institutions play often play a very very big part I and mean, i mentioned the sandinistas in nicaragua and 1979, or the uh, or the role of the black church in uh, the black in the civil rights in the early, early civil rights movement and in the black you know um, you know black even in the black power movement um, there you know they the the church or the mosque you know uh, sometimes you know was was a very very uh, important institution you know so um, and yeah, an institutional part of of um, of that you know resistance. So, yeah. What, what what I hear from from union organ from my own union and from uh, people like organizers again and again, especially in the last two year, two years, I would say two or three years, mm-hmm. is they say you know people talk about you know intersectionality and how this is supposed to be a framework that's going to help us to reconcile these competing demands of different you know valid things like and this is supposed. But they say, you know, in practice, it like it almost never works. Like if you're if you're because when you're actually doing labor organizing, um, you need to be able to keep your eye on the ball. You need to be able to uh, keep say, okay, like there are a number of worthwhile goals. But at the moment, we're going for for this one. And so we got to keep our eyes on the prize. And that uh, they, they say, you know, intersectionality, even when you try and sort of um, use the, the tools that that they present and say, okay, well, maybe I can get through this difficult ground by using these tools. It's, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work. In fact, uh, it usually just derails things. So if I'm you get sure into... That, yeah, but I mean, you get how into is sexuality a tool? How's well, exactly. Exactly. So here's the thing. I don't mean to disrespect folks who use that term, okay, because I do understand the, um, uh, I, I think I do understand the, 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 the spirit behind that term and that idea that people's, ex- it's one thing to say that a person's experience is a, is a, is a, is some, is some kind of, um, interaction of multiple experiences like you could be a uh, a, a, a a gay white working class uh, male okay so the experience of being a gay male the experience of being white the experience of working class all those intersect in, in, in terms of a very specific and individual human experience I mean I, un- I understand that what I think is that what I and I don't know what these labor organizers you know I'd be interesting to talk to them but labor the 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 labor movement has been addressing um quote intersectionality unquote from the very beginning when you talk about for example the idea of um a seniority uh system which it doesn't answer all of the problems of discrimination but it does answer a lot of them so that promotions um uh uh shift preferences um opportunity other opportunities in the in the plant uh layoffs are determined by an objective factor rather than your black or your white 
or you know i i mean i've I had the experience when i was younger i went i went into um a, uh i was working in well i don't know which experience i should pull from here's one i went for a job to look for a job in a tannery in milwaukee and um all all the guys in the tannery who were working the really hard jobs doing all the really heavy bulwark and tanneries it's mostly bulwark were black and i worked in a foundry i worked in a couple of foundries when i was in milwaukee and uh and as a young man and a lot of the really excruciatingly hot jobs were black those were non-union foundries now under a seniority system you don't you're not necessarily delegated the worst jobs based on race you're delegated jobs based on whether what your seniority date is. So, um, you know, so it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or black or white or uh, native or whatever uh, under a seniority system. It, it breaks down a little bit because generally speaking, there's also been a pattern of um, last hired, first fired. And, you know, in situations where uh, non-white people are the last hired, you know, they don't necessarily have the greatest seniority to exercise under a system of that. But um, the labor movement has tried, I mean, you know, in various ways, you know, throughout its history to address, you know, multiple, the way people are multiply oppressed, you know, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you understand? Yeah, there's a, that great line in the second season of The Wire where, uh, you know, where the, the union bosses, I think it's his nephew, not his like, you know, idiot son, you know, <laughs> but his uh, his nephew who, um, he says, uh, seniority is great if you're senior, you know, and you know, what happens, you know, I've been in a number of union jobs where, you know, that seniority system seems to become, um, it seems to kind of become a source of great deal of resentment for, I mean, I guess any, any system is going to be resented for some reasons, but yeah, I seniority. Know, I never, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Okay. I've worked in serious union jobs. Like I worked at 10 yeah. years, 10 years at general motors, uh, in, which was organized by the UAW. Nobody had problems with the seniority system. It was the only fair way to do things. And everybody recognized that. So um, there may be problems with, um, you know, with, uh, you know, there are times when somebody who may be a little bit more qualified gets a, gets a job based on seniority versus somebody who's a little less qualified. But, you know, so there, it, it's maybe there may be imperfections and some people prefer a merit system. But, you know, for that, for those reasons. But I think that by and large, in like in my experience, uh, nobody would have nobody in that plant and nobody in that. Uh, era of uh, you know membership in the UAW or in the steelworkers or in in uh, United Food and Commercial Workers or any of those unions would have ever chucked the seniority system because without the seniority system your boss comes up to you and says listen you know sleep with me and I'll give you uh, I'll give you overtime okay yeah paint my garage on the weekend and I'll give you overtime you know yeah. it takes all of those factors which are not even that you know like painting a garage I mean that's that's not a that doesn't have to do with racial or sexual oppression, but, uh, you know, it takes all of those subjective factors out of the way that you're treated. Yeah. Well, there's a, one of the, we had Joseph Henrik on just a couple, I guess, a couple months ago and his, about his new book, um, the weirdest people in the world. And he has this whole bit in there where he talks and I asked him about it actually when he was on, he, where he says that, you know, one of the things that, 
we've been told we've we've heard from a lot of people who who push for kind of a, a class analysis of conflict in society is you know they've said again and again that um, you know race is is not real it's a social contract construct gender is not real these like religion these things are all kind of like epiphenomena they're not really they're not real and class is the only thing that's actually real and and yet again and again uh his his point is if you look at the history of the 20th century again and again and again when when people have been up against the wall and they had to choose between their let's say their racial identity or their religious identity or national identity or, or even gender identity and that people most of the time um pick that other identity over class and he and he his argument is is that actually they're wrong that um, that in fact these other identities are much more rooted in our um, our evolutionary like the the kind of animal that we are that to like you don't need kids before they even have language they've done tests on little kids where they show them different faces and see like how they respond to different faces and how they respond to different voices and how they respond to different genders. You know, like if they respond to men or, or women that kids, you know, long before they've been socialized, before they can even talk, they already show preference for faces that look like um, look like their parents and like the people close to them. They already show preference for people who yeah, looking, uh, looking at your, talk like, like that. Your parents, that's your parents are your first socialization, right? That's a social. That's. I, I mean, I don't know if I really like. No, but his, his point the, was that his point was that these yeah. things are all to to a large extent socially constructed. But he goes, of all of them, uh, by far the fakest of the fake. He he basically says they're all more or less bullshit but he goes the class is by far the most artificial of the categories that we go for and that in fact the um, various kinds of ugly um, ethnic and racial nationalism and gender bias these things are much more rooted in our you know whatever you know, to go back to the expression you gave you know the nature of things these are more rooted. Yeah, but, I, but you have to remember, I backed off that. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I backed yeah. off that motherfucker. Okay. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't think that I actually bought into it. You know? <laughs> anyway, okay. listen, here, let me respond a little bit to some of what yeah. I, I think that, you know, rate, you know, you can say race is a social construct, which it is, but without record, at the same time, recognizing that's powerful, um, a powerful force because of, because of the, there's a long held history, a long, you know, a, a history of racism and where people have been sort of categorized by, by, you know, color, color code. Uh, I'm not really sure, like, especially living, having a very multiracial family, like uh, if, it, if it's actually, if there's actually some fundamental thing where you recognize the uh, blackness and black people. And if you're like a little black uh, one baby or something, I, I, I tend to, I've never, personally seen that I, but whatever the uh I, I don't think there's a contradiction in pointing out that that people will identify with people who speak like them people who grew up like them people who have been in the case of say uh, black people treated in the same way under within a racist system 
Um, so that that is definitely the case. I don't think class is so artificial, though. I think what ha- it depends on the period, and it depends on the, the particular juncture too. Um, I think that um, when uh, when workers went on strike in 1959 at United at uh, United States Steel Southworks in Chicago, uh, those that was a multiracial uh, cohort of working people, uh, black folks from the South side of Chicago, white folks from the North side of Chicago. Um, you know, some of those white folks were probably pretty bigoted, um, you know, having, having grown up in the Midwest, pretty can, much can, can say that's probably the case, but they did manage to, to, uh, pull off a national strike that was, you know, massively, uh, you know, that was pretty successful. And, and, um, and then they were able to get past, uh, you know, you know, racial, uh, you know, racial conflict in, in in the exercising of their of their power as working people. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think this? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, but I want to just shift gears for a second here. How do you think? Uh, recently, my my union actually decided voted to go on strike, and I was, you know, I obviously I, I'm gonna go along with you know, what they're doing, but I was, I was sort of frustrated by the techniques that they're using. And I, and I, you know, I said this and it's, it's become a source of frustration for me that I, I feel very often like the labor movement um, in Canada, the United States, I think maybe they're a little bit more ahead of the curve in Northwestern Europe, but it seems to me like the labor movement here is, using techniques that that were forged in a in a different world where the the pressure points on employers and things like that were different you know to kind of make, right make things I, happen yeah, so like, for right. instance having yeah. having a strike mm-hmm. having a strike where during a fucking pandemic you go and surround the sejab and but nobody's there and nobody can see the truth. Like you're right. not actually, you're causing no pain whatsoever. You're not, you're, there's no inconvenience. It's, it, it feels like, like a samurai sword, yeah, you know, well, sword I mean, is like fighting with, with a sword when everybody's moved on to machine guns. It's like, so did you guys yes, win? Well, I don't think so. Okay. Well, but, but that's here's, besides here's the, the point. I mean, here's, it was here's not a good, yeah. it's not a good technique. And and so many of our tools that we use just uh, they're laughable to employers now. Right. right. Well, a lot of look the the labor movement in North America and it, maybe it's a little less so in Canada, but at least in the United States, which is a labor movement that I know much much better. Um, I, I was briefly in your your union I, when I taught at uh, Collège Marie Victorin. Um, okay. So I had like I was like in and out. I, I taught there for two semesters. Um, and so I don't really, but I really don't have like personal experience in the Canadian labor movement or in the Quebec labor movement. But in what what's happened over the years is there's a number of things that have happened. One is that um, the unions have become heavily bureaucratized. Um, my own, uh, you know, UAW, which at one time was probably the most um, successful militant and one of the most democratic unions even though it's never really a democratic, you know, 100% democratic union, uh, you know, a lot of its leadership has recently gone to jail for um, 
for various kinds of corruption charges. And uh, so, I mean, you know, the labor movement has, has deteriorated and degenerated um, over the years because, for various reasons, um, some of which have had to do with uh, the, the earlier relative success of those unions, like the ability of, say, the steelworkers of the UAW to get really great uh, wages and benefits for its workers um, meant that its workers kind of fell asleep to a certain extent. And then when things started getting really scary in the late 70s and early 80s, um, they were easily, because they lost that tradition of rank and file um, struggle, they were easily manipulated by their leaders to uh, accept concessions that ultimately led to the, that actually directly led to the downfall to those, to those, to those leaders of the UAW being you know, thrown in jail recently. I mean, it was a direct relationship between, between those, um, uh, those events. So, you know, the bureaucratization of unions, the lack of militancy of those unions, the inability of the labor movement now to organize Amazon in uh, Alabama. I mean, the, the, it's kind of crazy and outrageous because um, here you've got some of the most depressed and struggling workers in North America working in a traditionally industrial setting and the American labor movement can't organize them. You know, why? Because, you know, why join, you know, a top-down ossified organization dominated by bureaucrats who, you know, who just are really interested in collecting union dues. So um, there's a, there's a class struggle that needs to take place and that has taken place in unions itself. It's not just, you know, class struggle, if to use that term, uh, isn't just something that, you know, isn't just workers, you know, in their unions fighting their bosses. Their bosses have advocates in their own organizations and uh, getting rid of those, um, you know, getting rid of that system and restoring democracy in unions is key to restoring militancy in those unions and is key to, for, you know, to working class success, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're totally right about that. I remember my first introduction to a non-theoretical view of, of how unions work was I got a job at Steinberg's grocery store. It was a, back in the day, it was like the biggest chain in all of Quebec. And Sam Steinberg started it from just a little shop on, on the main and turned it into this empire which his kids ran into the ground within about five minutes of him, five years of him dying they they his kids were just like the kind of stereotypical kind of kids who've grown up super super rich and they just don't they don't have any of the virtues that the that the right. parents had yeah. they were just like total coke heads with gambling problems and buying lamborghinis and you know just doing like insane shit but uh, they ran into the ground. But when I got that job, I was a bagger at the, the grocery store. It was the, the one in Alexis Neon Plaza in the base right down there. And I, I remember when I got there, you, you right away became a member of the union. Now, I had to pay dues. Even though I was like a, you know, I don't know 13, 14 years old, um, I got zero benefits. But I still had to pay out of this like meager little salary part-time i was i had to pay i can't remember how much what it was but it was like a pretty good chunk 
of my of what I made went to the union dues, even though I got zero out of it. But there, I remember there was remember the name of the union. I can't remember. My friend Paulo probably he was working there. I can ask him. He most probably would those, remember. Yeah, most of those unions are going to usually at least I don't know about here, but in the states, you know, typically union dues. When I was, uh, you know, um, in the UAW, we're two hours two hours a month. So two hours a month if uh, for a full time worker isn't that onerous. You know the the um, the craft unions. Um, you know, usually, the, oftentimes, you have to, you know, pay uh, an entrance fee, and there are all kinds of heavy duty fees in, in craft unions. But you know, the, the the supposed justification for that on the level is uh, that you know, uh, if you're if you've got a, a serious craft, you know, you're not an industrial worker, uh, you know, you can afford that. But I mean, part of the, you know, I, I mean, I have my issues with craft unions, frankly. I mean, I for the industrial model, but, um, you know, I, I have a really hard time believing that, that, that the, unless you were working very, very few hours that the union does in a, in a grocery store were that onerous, you know, UFCW. Well, there was, there, but what I remember the most, yeah. what I remember the most is that there were guys in the back that were butchers right. that were, that were kind of had done a skilled, job for right. a long time and they were making enough money as doing like a, a job at a grocery store yeah. you know, and not just as a cashier they were doing something they worked like the chakrituri or the or the right. they and and they were making enough money that they could live a life of dignity they they right. you know they weren't like rich but they had a place in the laurentians they were sure doing yeah. all right and they went just in the time that i was working there which was a few years. I watched those guys go from making 24 bucks an hour to 19 bucks an hour to 17 bucks an hour. It just kept going down and down and down. And you could just see people losing faith in, in, in the union movement in general. And they just get more and more angry. And then they were watching how the, the union bosses, were you know renovating their place in the Laurentians and driving like like a you know recent car and were clearly they were you know nobody really knew if they were taking kickbacks or if they but they were clearly doing fine and meanwhile well, the, yeah, the workers yeah, were going is, down down what down, happens down, to down, the down. right but what happens to being in bosses to use that term and I'm not really crazy about that term but I would prefer the term bureaucrat because I think it more scientifically just describe what they are okay there are people who rode on the backs of the militancy of unions that you know because that's the militant militants workers militancy is what created those unions and these are people riding on the backs of that and um you know by they they are able to uh rest a certain amount of institutional control and um quell democracy in their in their ranks and one of the reasons why they're able to call democracy in the ranks sometimes is because their success is because, you know, some degree they're successful. So nobody wants to, rock, you know, the, the rank and file doesn't necessarily want to rock the boat. Um, so, you know, that, the, that gets back to this idea. Like when I was in the UAW, one of the things as part of a group, um, 
you know, there were different incarnations of different sort of reform movements in the UAW. And um, the UAW wasn't one of these really filthy, corrupt unions, but it was a top-down bureaucratic union nonetheless. And um, um, one of the things that we fought for and did not succeed in winning was the principle of one member, one vote whereby the membership would vote, would directly elect its international leadership instead of having um, delegates at a convention elect its international leadership. And that was because of a sort of patronage system that the, that the union leaders, that the union bureaucrats were able to build up over time. Um, that was something that was very, very hard to to win you know but you yeah. know we, we did struggle around it we did not in my generation we didn't succeed they actually haven't succeeded in that up until the present day and but the issues actually with all this corruption the uaw uh, sort of um re- been revived and it remains to be seen if at some point the uaw which is now just a shadow of a shadow of a shadow of its former self will be able to get finally get one member one vote you know which is a very basic simple fundamental way in which you you know the rank and file is able to uh, assert power over entrenched bureaucrats yeah well i i remember one of the most radical uh suggestions put forward by the wobblies you know the international workers of the world uh back in the 19th century in the early 20th century that i i was blown away by this when i heard about it for the first time is there were people that proposed that the leadership of the union should be decided by lottery and it should just be rotating and you should just like randomly choose uh, a new slate of people so that you get around the bureaucracy problem that you're talking about where people get entrenched and get comfortable and Mm -hmm. and their argument you know people of course the, the leninist types immediately were like wow we need a vanguard we need people that you know, know what they're doing and are tough and are organized, focused. And their response was like, yeah, okay. It does mean there's going to be a steep learn- learning curve for some people when they come on, but, and you know, there'll be some stumbles, but, but ultimately you're going to save yourself so many problems that if you, and if you actually just rotate who's in power on a regular basis, it's just going to be better for the health of the union. I mean, do you think that is totally, I think it's I think it's really like I love the sentiment. Really, I love the sentiment. You know, I love the wobblies. You know, like I've had wobbly friends. We used to go down to uh, the office on Webster Avenue in Chicago when I was uh, when I was doing a lot of political work, and you know, the good people. But uh, I think that that's not um, really the best solution. I think that um, the rank and file can put forward its you know its own uh, leadership without uh, some kind of rotating system, which basically puts anybody in there. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, I mean, the best, the best leaders come out of, come out of struggle, you know, come off the shop, you know, come off the shop floor and come out of, of actual struggle. And, um, and I just, I think that they should be direct, you know, they should be directly elected. Um, and these patronage systems should be, uh, done away with um but i think that a rotating system is a very it's very idealistic it's very laudable in sentiment but i don't think it would i don't think it would work and i think the fact that the wobblies 
never really, uh, you know, they, they kind of lost ground to the CIO, you know, so yeah. I think that the, the historical record shows that, <laughs> that, you know, they, they could have used a little, a little bit less anarchism and a little bit more organizational um, aptitude. They did face though, you know, in fairness to them, they did face probably one of the biggest waves of organized state suppression for sure in the history of the united states it is unbelievable the amount of resources that were put into kneecapping those motherfuckers they went after them like they went it's just crazy and we have all the documents now they literally literally shot people assassinated people and yeah i mean but that the the CIO wasn't exactly welcomed by, um, uh, you know, the ruling class either. What what the CIO was able to do, though, was the CIO was able to very effectively organize. The Wobblies, too, organized across, across ethnic lines, by the way, pretty effectively. But the CIO really got it, got it done. And they also were able to get it done at a time when, um, you know, during the Depression, and coming out of really coming out of the depression when there were these factories with just tens of thousands of people working all together that you could organize in a, you know, pretty effectively. Whereas the Wobblies organizing say, you know, um, mines in the late 19th century did not have those, um, you know, they were more geographically isolated from one another and they didn't have those big, you know, audiences like um that you would get in you know the the steel mills in the 1930s or the or the um or the uh or even the teamsters in the 1930s um even though the teamsters were not cio but the organizing of the teamsters the transformation of the teamsters from um from a relatively small craft type of union to an industrial union that process was uh, a consequence of CIO style organizing, you know, across the central part of the United States, starting in, in uh, Minneapolis. So, you know, so yeah, even though it wasn't technically part of the CIO, it was, um, you know, they were using those same, same methods and they were, the the Teamsters were, whereas the CIO was probably um, had had a, it had a pretty big communist party component of its leadership the the folks who led the, the the organization the teamsters were largely trotskyists yeah well it's it's interesting because i think part of the the reason why they were successful where the wobblies were not is that they were very good at um sort of playing the game or how should i put it using the energies released by the two-party system in Canada, the UK, uh, the States. So they, they were good at getting in on that, um, the, the democratic political system, especially the two-party system. And so by aligning themselves with, um, with the Democratic Party, you know, albeit imperfectly, and it was rough, <laughs> it wasn't always a happy marriage, but, uh, and the Labour Party, same thing in the UK, and then to a lesser extent, but still because you had the NDP here, so people had a little bit of options, but the Liberal Party to some extent here. Now, 
there's this analysis that I, I, I don't really agree with that. And I, um, so I you don't that, think, think the CIO was good at that? I, I think that the original impulse that I think that the CIO became good at it as it became more bureaucratic. But most of the 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 initial wave of organizing the CIO was had really really had nothing didn't didn't uh, have much to do with the Democratic Party and a lot of that them avoided connection to the Democratic Party. I think that came a little bit later. Like in the in um, I mean I, I'd have to really go back and look maybe more in the history, but I. I, that's that's my that's kind of my memory of it. Um, the, uh, I, there's because I remember you know, Roosevelt, a real alliance. Roosevelt took yeah, exactly. a while. Teddy, Roosevelt, Teddy. No, no, I'm talking about Teddy Roosevelt no, with the Progressive Franklin, Party. Franklin Roosevelt. Had, yeah, but he, yeah. with with Teddy Roosevelt, he brought it, brought them in, and then when the Progressive Party, yeah, that third party, kind of fell apart. The, the progressive CIO yeah. didn't exist when Teddy Roosevelt was president. No, the, but the the story I always I was always told this. They kind of looked at the Progressive Party. They looked at Eugene Debs getting a million votes while he's still in jail. Right, but Eugene thought, Debs was not a Democrat. No, no, I know that people looked at this situation and said, you know what? There's a lot of these people can probably deliver a lot of votes, and so let's like you know throw them a bone. Uh, and they'll like and and Gompers, I mean, he's really good at delivering votes. Yeah, but Gompers, here's the thing about Gompers is Gompers was AFL. Gompers was pretty right wing union hack bureaucrat of the kind <laughs> that basically <laughs> takes people off the streets and off the picket lines. So you know, I don't really and and also is from a period before, well before the CIO uh, organized. I think that if we're talking about the, the I think that the 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 um leaning towards the Democratic Party in the labor movement came about along with the bureaucratization, the increased bureaucratization of the labor movement and the willingness of the Democratic Party under Roosevelt to try to co-opt the the uh, what the radicalism that was being unleashed. I mean, you have to understand that in uh, the period around you know, 1935, approximately, check me on the dates, uh, when we're coming out of the reset of, of the, the depression, you know, the Teamsters had basically shut down the Twin Cities um, on the West Coast. Dock workers had shut down major ports uh, on the East Coast. Um, there had been uh, or in the Midwest, there had been you know, the Toledo Autolite strike that shut down the city of Toledo. There's like in those and I don't mean just shut down, but basically we're beginning to set up kind of localized. Um, I don't uh, you know revolutionary sort of civil uh, situations. Yeah, workers' so, collectives. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it, just north of the border in Winnipeg, they shut right. the whole city down. That's right. And so yeah. what's happening then is, you know, Roosevelt, who had had a certain amount of uh, imagination, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, was forced to throw the labor movement a bone in order to tame it. In order to, and so as the you know, so as he's he's setting up, you know, he's pro- giving concessions like Social Security, like the Federal Housing Administration. Um, you know, he's, um, you know, he's the at the same time the bureaucracy is becoming hardened in the labor movement, and the and the and the state itself is 
aiding and abetting that process, like in the way that, you know, the formation of the national, the passing of the National Labor Relations Act under um, under Roosevelt legitimized labor unions and basically created a situation where unions could be organized without necessarily the kind of militant mass action that shut down Flint, Michigan during the UAW Flint sit-down strikes. So I think that the process of bureaucratization and the uh, the movement of the Democratic Party to co-opt uh, labor kind of went hand in hand. And the Democratic Party's always played this function of being the um, sort of uh, wreckers of social movements. I mean, you can see it today. Um, Trump is no longer president. Biden is president. Uh, Kamala Harris is vice president. And where's a year after the um, the the big George Floyd protests, one year almost exactly, actually, my family and I went and demonstrated here in Montreal exactly a year ago, uh, there's nobody's nobody's on the streets anymore. You know, there's the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has at least in part been co-opted by the Democratic Party, you know. Huh. So, I mean, the people I see in the streets now are all these like anti-mask, like QAnon people. It's yeah, like, isn't that weird? Uh, it's completely weird. It's, it's they, fun, they, fun went down, they went down my street. Right. They went down my street and they just like they're they're so their slogans and their signs are so completely bonkers that I was actually the cops were sort of shaking their heads like what the fuck is this like <laughs> you know really really weird stuff like they like you know and that's and but what's interesting is that you have all of these different movements now that uh, in many ways they kind of they have copied the the language and the tactics of the labor movement but their messages are often really sort of counter-revolutionary or reactionary they're very like <laughs> but they they use a lot of the um the kind of the the style of it right which is one of the questions that i wanted to to ask well, two, two two kind of related questions one of them is there's i guess both of these are you might say to some extent kind of conspiracy theories uh, one of them is I, I've been hearing this one also. I you know, I keep coming back to David Fenario, but the first time I heard this was uh, from David Fenario, and he said uh, how that he he said I smell a rat with all this diversity stuff and multiculturalism stuff, and I said and so we sort of looked and thought, oh, is he just trying to be provocative? And, you know, but like, and he said, you know, it's not that I don't, you know, obviously I support. Uh, you know, I support like people everywhere, workers everywhere and stuff like that. It's not that. It's just, you know, part of the reason these people are moving here is because of dislocations caused by global capitalism. So like I would rather them have a good deal where they are so that they don't feel like they need to uproot their whole life and kind of move here. You know, so he goes, that's A. But he goes, that second part is, he said, you should be really suspicious of people pushing, you know, rainbow flags on on banks and on and all this like Black Lives Matter investment companies. And I mean, I'm, you know, taking his argument forward, you know, long after his death. But like he said, you know, because very often what these things are is a smokescreen for uh, covering up, you know, what they're actually what they're actually doing. So he said, you know, a lot of the. Uh, if you look at the people who are pushing for 
more and more immigration in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it wasn't humanitarians who, you know, who loved the people of the world and wanted to, you know, give us your poor, your sick, your like, it was big industrialists who were spending huge amounts of money to lobby both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to bring in more immigrants because they wanted to kneecap the labor movement. They wanted to flood flood the market with more and more workers right who and and that was a very effective and you know people like eric weinstein who probably is smoking too much weed but he says that uh, to this day uh this is a technique this is a very sneaky technique that a lot of people uh, well, within, right. I mean, there's, there's you know it, it, there's nothing new under the sun right um, and in a lot of ways, right? I mean, and until until somehow capitalism disappears, but um, you know, immigrants have always been used as scabs. Um, black workers, uh, you know, impoverished black people coming up from the south in Chicago were used as scabs in the, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, I'm thinking of East St. Louis and, and the East St. Louis um, race. I don't know what you want to call it, riot pogrom. Uh, you know, sort of came out of that. Um, so that's that's really nothing new. I think that it's very it's I, I think this guy, I don't know who he is, this local cat. Oh, yeah. David. Fenario, yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, was right to be suspicious of multiculturalism because it does sort of smack of the problems of nationalism in a way where where you like your your national grouping becomes more important than your 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 class identity. I mean, Rosa Luxemburg, who was a, uh, you know, who was a, you know, who was pretty much of a virulent anti-nationalist i think understood this very well being a working class jewish person in 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 uh in in europe in the early 20th century and that and she you know she differed with lenin on the on the national question uh you know she was very suspicious of 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 nationalism and i think that she had a really good point that it's 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 really it can be it can really be pretty destructive Um, i think however that um that you know when when this when this guy's you know you, you mentioned rainbow um you know there's this there was this force in chicago called the rainbow coalition that really came out of uh the act originally the activities of the black panther party in the late 60s and early 70s and the the and led by fred hampton who was assassinated by uh the fbi and the chicago police um and and they what they did was they organized they in uh, they they in collaboration and in solidarity with um, uh, Latino uh, activists and with um, white working class quote unquote hillbillies who came up from Appalachia to find work and uh, and organized themselves into a into a force called the Young Patriots. So the Rainbow Coalition was actually this you know multicultural rainbow, but very working class conscious. Um, force in Chicago that was so effective and so frightening for the ruling class that they had to assassinate its its uh, its leader, you know. So you know, multi there's that there's manifestations of multiculturalism that work to enhance working class solidarity, like that one. And then there's multi there's a lot of this multi you know, sort of liberal multiculturalism. I think um, you know poses problems for solidarity. Um, for 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 you know developing that kind of effective uh, you know solidarity, um, and here one point you, that you made, which I thought was pretty interesting, was that the right wing 
uh, mimics, you know, in their demonstrations and these demonstrations in Montreal around masking mimics left-wing tactics. That's absolutely true. That was also true in, uh, in, uh, pre in, in, in Weimar Germany. And then, uh, as the Nazis took over, I mean, they completely, you know, bit off, uh, you know, um, the tactic or many of the tactics of the communist party and the social democratic party, um, in, you know, organizing mass demonstrations, even adopting, uh, the, t- the word socialism in their party, um, in their party name, you know, they, you know, that's, that's not really, uh, you know, unprecedented. Um, and they, people do understand that organizing mass demonstrations can be effective. And, uh, I mean, you see like in Lansing, Michigan and other places in the United States, I mean, some of these guys, you know, some of these uh, very right-wing militia types were demonstrating at the state house in Lansing with uh, with firearms. You know, I mean, <laughs> they took it another step <laughs> further. You know, uh, I mean, the left generally doesn't do that, but uh, but they took it another step further. You know, yeah, it is it is pretty wild. I mean, I guess the the argument I was making with the rainbows and everything. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Fred Hampton and the Panthers and all that stuff because that's you know, but I. I'll never forget um, there was the the living wage movement in Baltimore. And we had it, one of the first universities that this kind of spread to was Johns Hopkins. And Annalise and I were living in Baltimore at the time and we joined the living wage movement. And it was, it was such an amazing experience that it ever, it kind of it took on and it got this crazy kind of movement energy we ended up occupying the president's building for a couple of a couple of weeks, and the, there was national press attention. Noam Chomsky came down and like spoke to us. Uh, Jesse Jackson came. Naomi Klein came. But there's there's this one I'll never forget. This uh, it was <laughs> because in retrospect, with everything that happened with the Confederate statues and everything, this was like an especially crazy memory. So, right next to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. There's this park called Wyman Park. Yeah, I know that place. It, it, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, like, like they call it the Dell. You know, the yeah. like we used to be like the gay pickup joint in like the 20s and 30s, apparently. But anyway, so we're in Wyman Park, and there's this huge statue of Robert E. Lee on a horse. Right. And it's and so we're it's a big demonstration. They got a podium, and Jesse Jackson, of course, guy that. He's got such a sense for political theater. He had his like podium right next to Robert E. Lee. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and just, he just he just sort of glanced at it, and he like he didn't even really have to say much. It was obvious enough. At all, you know? just looked right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he said, uh, and he went into this whole long kind of really amazing uh, speech about like the importance of centering class over over race and identity politics and stuff like that and how this was and he said you know right now uh they want you to believe the republicans and stuff they want you to believe that uh it's wealth black welfare queens that are you know soaking up all these social programs and things like that and he goes actually uh the the most likely characteristic of uh, somebody who's on welfare in this country is it's young female white and rural right. that is the most likely that's who actually is it yeah. but they don't want you they want you to racialize 
these things, right? And that and is really think- that's that's very very much the truth of that, you know. And 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 Jackson was a great organizer. Like I I mean I and he was oriented to the working class. I mean, he was you know he he had, he played footsie with the you know with Democratic Party and stuff. But you know he's the you know I remember when you know he came up. He was eighty eight when he was running for president. He came up to Kenosha, Wisconsin to uh, picket with the. Uh, uh, I think I, th- I don't know if they were on strike. If it was an informational picket, I don't remember. But with the uh, local seventy-two of the UAW at uh, the American Motors plant down there, and I mean, I was pretty impressed with that. I was like, "Hey, well, there's the first time I ever heard of a major uh, politician from a major political party who's running for president uh, picketing with workers." You know, uh, you know, it, it, it was for me um, pretty unheard of. Um, and, and he also, speaking of rainbow, he also basically, I don't know the history of this because I, I, I just never bothered to look, but he basically somehow took over this rainbow coalition in Chicago or, you know, became the titular head of it or something. But I don't know how that happened, but, uh, you know, but, uh, but he, he had a, he had both that sort of orientation to working class politics and, to sort of uh, some kind of multiculturalism, but it came, I think it was probably influenced by, uh, you know, by the legacy of the Chicago branch of the Black Panthers. You know I mean, he just, yeah. you know. no, but everything, he, everything he said in his speech that, that day in Baltimore, when I look back on it, he was just right on, on his analysis was so completely on point. And he said it just, in language that absolutely anybody can understand. He didn't use big words and jargon or like some, you know, sociological terminology or anything. He was very, very strict, but he, he said, look. You didn't uh, say intersectionality for example. He definitely did not say that. It didn't exist at the time, but if it did, he wouldn't have said it. So. Right. But uh, he, he did say that, uh, he said, you got to understand a lot of the, like a lot of the identity politics uh, language and that, that model of like social change it essentially, he goes, it works really well if you're in a kind of a post-colonial country where the majority of the people are, are X, uh, are, and then you have a small minority, whether it be uh, sort of ethnic Germans in what became Czechoslovakia or whether it be whatever. If you have like, like a small minority of people who have an obvious disproportionate amount of power then you can use it as an organizing principle identity politics. It can be very volatile. It can get out of hand. It can lead to a lot of ugliness. But at least it's like from a pragmatic perspective, it makes sense. But he goes, if you use that uh, strategy when you're trying to mobilize a minority, that's like a recipe for disaster. Because <laughs> you're basically telling people to... Uh, to see their, you know, their identity. Well, what it does is, here's in a very practical issue here, right? I mean, here, this is how the, uh, I mean, this is how Bernie Sanders was defeated in the primaries, and uh, it's, 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 um, you know, if you, if you, Joe Biden got elected largely on the basis of black, the so-called black vote, and and he had nominated, you know, very, you know, strategically uh, Kamala Harris. Who is not exactly, you know, you know, who's passed as as the attorney general of the state of California, was not exactly, um, you know, friendly to a lot of black folks and Latinos and working class people, you know. Uh, but what you do is you tell, you know, black people who 
very understandably uh, want to take want to want to find some you know source of uh, pride and admiration. Uh, we're very very happy to vote for Biden and Harris. You know, even though I would argue voting for Biden Harris was against not you know their 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 class and uh, their class interest and interest as a as an oppressed um, group as especially oppressed group within uh, within American society. But uh, yeah, I mean they went you know it was it was a, it was a great trick that Biden who basically built his whole career on segregation and racism uh, you know pulled out of his hat in order to, in order to get elected, you know? So, you know, identity politics, voting for the person who looks, theoretically looks like you, you know, doesn't necessarily help you in any way, you know, and may actually weaken and undermine you. And I think in that case, um, I don't think that black people are better off now or pretty much anybody's better off because Biden and Harris are president and vice president. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's we we see that right here in, in Quebec, like so much. I mean, they, Maurice Duplessis, who was the premier, he yeah, right. was exactly. absolutely he. I mean, the the provincial police, the SQ, were essentially his private Pinkertons. That that their their sole job in life was to go get drunk and go and beat the living shit out of like striking workers and right. people trying to unionize, and he. He was like one of the most reactionary leaders that this province probably well has ever seen, probably will ever see. But the way that he gave himself cover for all of the horrible stuff he was doing to working people and kind of just keeping this place behind decades of everywhere else was by just like wrapping himself in the flag of you know the french language and of french culture and of the church and like just presenting himself you know in his personal life he was a complete degenerate you know he didn't actually believe any of this stuff he was he was like a, a drunk and it was you know he was you know patronizing prostitutes all the time who was his house was filled with like modern art you know but when he left he did like that republican thing where you like suddenly pretend that everything's God and country. And like, and so it is, there is this interesting way in which ide- identity, thing. identity politics um, has been historically used to, uh, as a smokescreen for covering policies that are terrible for working people. It's a, de- it's a complete dead end. And I mean, you know, like that's why, uh, I mean, it, it, it just, uh, and I think people are beginning to recognize that. I mean, I think, I think, you know, people, are they? People, I, I, I feel like, so, yeah. I feel like they, they, rec- I feel like uh, I less think, people recognize it now than ever before. I think people are, uh, and I think people are beginning to understand. One thing that I found interesting is that I watched a lot of um, uh, black activists uh, just in recent weeks with the, with the situation in um, Israel, Palestine. Um, break with people who had supported the Biden candidacy. Okay, and I saw a lot of these black activists who had supported the Biden candidacy now breaking with uh, Biden over uh, the um, the U.S. role in supporting Israel uh, in that in that uh, you know in the oppression of 
Palestinian people. So, you know, I think that there are things that happen where, you know, you have to grapple with, um, you know, your belief system, everybody has to do this, you know, versus reality. And that, you know, this kind of thing where this kind of thought process where I have this belief system, you know, or some kind of theoretical belief system, like believing in multiculturalism or believing in Marxism or believing in Christianity or whatever it is, you know, comes up against reality. And you have to like, okay, maybe I need to shift things around a little bit or maybe expand my, be less dogmatic and expand my horizons a little bit to be able to understand the contradictions, okay, which is kind of Marxy, Marxishy or Hegelian, uh, to understand the contradictions that are at work here, you know, and to find mm-hmm. where, do I, where do I position myself and how do I address those things and what action do I take to make the changes that I want to make? Yeah, I guess I, for me, as a, as a general orienting principle, I tend to think that most of the most tragic conflicts in the world are not a function of, of sort of uh, good and evil virtues and vices where there's like the, the super bad people on this side and the good people. I think there are some conflicts that are like that, but most of the time I think it, the truth is much sort of more fucked up than that. I think actually right, what, but, you, what, you usually, what you usually have is you have, it's, it's a virtue against a virtue rather than a virtue against a vice. So if you like most people in the world, the, I, you know, you're going to find a couple of sociopaths here and there everywhere who basically don't really think that mm-hmm. uh, compassion is a good thing or empathy is a good thing or, or honesty is a good thing or loyalty is a good thing. You'll find a couple of weirdos here and there who think that. But most people, whether it be like a Taliban fighter or whether it be like a social worker in Detroit or whether most people in the world ha- have you know, similar kind of ideas of what is good and what are good qualities. Where all the conflict happens, I think, is that people prioritize them differently. So, you know, when when two virtues come into conflict, you know, rather, rather than going with the Disney model where it's always like a virtue against a vice bullshit, most of the time it's the virtue against the virtue. So when loyalty to your friend comes into conflict, let's say, with uh, your belief in justice or your belief in like or something else. Like when, when push comes to shove and two things that you think are important come into conflict, what do you side with? The problem well, it seems to me is right. that when it comes to people, lots of people will say, yes, class matters. Uh, yes. Uh, language politics matter. Yes. Race matters. Yes. Gender stuff. But when push comes to shove, they, generally speaking, will prioritize something else above class. Even well, I, here's, here's, that where class I, here's where I have to part ways with you on that. I think that that um, that people do things. Um, the people believe in the rightness of their cause, and people do things because they really often they really think that their way of doing things is really better for the better for everybody. You know, it's um, it's corporations are better for humanity because they provide all of these uh, goods and services or whatever. 
but I don't think I, I think that a lot of uh, the re- these things that you talk about that happen in the world, I think a lot of it's based in economics and in material uh, struggle. You know, material. You know, the struggle over material um, things, either goods, resources, human labor, um, uh, geopolitical positioning, um, influence, uh, power, so on and so forth. And, and, um, I mean, I think it's, that's what's really at play in these conflicts around the world. I don't think it's that somehow, um, there's just, you know, I don't think say, let's just take Israel, Palestine, because it's been on the, on the front burner for the past few weeks. I don't think Israel-Palestine is about, oh, Hamas has some virtuous uh, instincts and Netanyahu has some virtuous instincts and they're just different. They just have different priorities. Uh, um, Hamas, as messed up as it is, um, you know, is, uh, it represents people, um, and I, I'm not endorsing Hamas, but uh, or their methods uh, that are, barely surviving and Netanyahu wants uh, settlers to be able to take over East Jerusalem and area C in on the West bank. So those are very, those are that that's, that's conflict based on um, uh, very material realities. One, you know, the struggle to take over chunks of land, real estate, and two, the struggle on the part of the Palestinians to um, assert themselves and defend themselves. As, as I think, yeah, I think, you know, the problem with that analysis for me, I, and I definitely, I remember believing that like completely at a certain point, you know, when I was younger, but I think the problem, the reason why I generally speaking don't buy into that anymore is that when you look up under the hood of most radical movements, and this is, you know, you, if you want to go back to like, you know, Oliver Cromwell and the, the Puritans to the Taliban to like the anti-slavery movement to to uh, you know you name it like most of these movements when you look at who is running them and who kind of is the main image it's usually people like Osama bin Laden who like are do not come from, they're not like peasants that are horribly downtrodden it generally speaking is the most comfortable educated people in any society that are the people who are most likely to get involved in that, that, ra- that, radical I, movements i don't i don't know about um uh, you know every single social movement in the history of the world but that is often true i mean uh lenin was uh came from an aristocratic family um marx was uh, obviously a middle-class scholar uh fidel castro came from uh, his father was a uh I think it was the illegitimate son of a of a man who was a, who owned a, a significant plantation, um, and so that that's true. And I think that there are reasons why that happens, and why say the most oppressed, the oppressed don't necessarily rise up. Although sometimes sometimes they do. Sometimes they do, but, but most the, of the time the reason, it the seems the, like it's the, not material things pushing people. The, well, but it's. Those people, those individuals are one thing and the movement that they're able to see if it was just up to them as individuals they, without a movement behind them, they'd be nothing. I mean, Len, you know, Lenin without, uh, you know, the, the masses of uh, Russian workers 
who organized into Soviets and who were willing to defend the revolution in the Red Army would have been nothing except some, uh, ex except some, uh, you know, scion of an aristocratic family with, you know, certain kinds of ideas. Uh, his brother, for example, was assassinated, uh, died, uh, you know, an assassination attempt, uh, you know, a number of years earlier uh, because he was, did not have any kind of social base. So, yeah, I mean, some of these leaders come from these more privileged, mem you know, members of society because they're able to, you know, have luxury of, uh, of um, contemplation <laughs> that people who are just dealing with survival don't necessarily have. Uh, but they really wouldn't be anything had they not been able to um, uh, organize people who were you know, who did come from different and more oppressed social layers uh, around their own self-interest. There would have been no Cuban revolution if the Cuban masses hadn't actually organized, fought, and defended that revolution. You know, there would have been no uh, Russian revolution had Lenin and Trotsky, who both were, Trotsky's family, they were kulaks, they were privileged peasants. You know, had they not been able to Organize, you know, huge numbers of people, and and and, and exert uh, a tremendous amount of you know class power. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I think this gets into a whole other, you know, neck of but I, I wonder, you know, is actually why is it that so many of these movements, and this is something that uh, Adam Gopnik, who we've had on the podcast twice. And he brings this up in his book, uh, A Thousand Small Sanities, that, you know, if, if you look at the actual track record of these movements, um, he says that they've mostly uh, been terrible. Like for the people, they, they turn and end up becoming horrific to the people that they're supposedly defending. And then he, he goes in on the opposite side with ethnic nationalism, but very often it ends up, they end up like, hurting the people that they're claiming to support. And he says the boring, yeah. he goes, the boring liberals in the middle who, you know, no, no university professors can, they're going to assign like Nietzsche and Marx and, you know, other things that are kind of sexy and fun. Nobody's going to assign like, you know, John Stuart Mill on Liberty and stuff. It's like, Oh, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I don't think that that's correct. I think I, for example, after you I, said that, I went and looked at the the syllabi uh -huh. of my department, and I looked at like the syllabi of my wife's department, and I like asked a bunch of my friends who were at the time like chairs of their departments in the states in Canada. He's a hundred percent right. I, I don't agree. Uh, it, it may be true. It may be true up here in the in Canadian CGEPs or Quebec CGEPs, but that was not my experience at all. As a matter of fact, my experience was the opposite. My experience was in in poli sci 101. We learned we we did John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith extensively, as well as Marx and Ricardo and all these others. You know, we, well, Ricardo was a liberal, but um, you know, I, so I know that was not my experience. And uh, and I, and here's um, and I I think that there's a mistake in in this kind of analogy that I'm sensing. I mean, you haven't you haven't exactly asserted this, but I'm sensing that, there, that there's this kind of what I would regard as an error in your, in your thinking. It's not about these movements, you know, turning, you know, going bad and just, you know, out of, you know, out of some 
natural dynamic, you know, turning on eating their um, supporters or something like that, turning on their supporters. What happens is it's like what happened in the labor movement or what happened in uh, Russia as it degenerated into Stalinism or what had happened in, uh, you know, the French Revolution as it as it uh, as it degenerated into, you know, um, Bonapartism. You know, what happens is that there's real it's not about it's not some university formula written on a blackboard or a whiteboard. There's a real there's a real human dynamics that go on and real social forces that shape and sometimes and, and are and are responsible for the degeneration of say the Soviet revolution, the Russian revolution into Stalinism. There are real material forces like civil war, you know, like uh, you know, there's like which 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 was backed by the uh Western imperial powers. So you know, the, there's a real reason why the American labor movement, real material reasons why the American labor movement was, um, you know, became bureaucratized and corrupted uh, by basically the bosses, you know, with the with the participation of the Democratic Party, because the a, a radicalized labor movement was opposed to the interest to the to the material interest of big business. So it's, 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 I don't think you can just say, well, gee, you know, you know, they really met well in the beginning and then all of a sudden they turn on their, uh, their people because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely or, or some bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are some ideas which just from their inception and I, you know, once again, I, Susan Nyman makes this point far better than I ever could, but in, in her book on um, evil and modern thought, and she says, you know, there's this, common and she's very much like of the left it was super much but but she said you know there's this idea that we have that uh that somehow uh you know christianity was pure when it was the message of jesus and then it was corrupted by saint paul and that, you know marxism and was was pure but it was corrupted by lenin and stalin and stuff like that and she goes that's just like that just does not stand up to scrutiny because it's like actually right there in the, the founders, and she gives a number of parallels from Jesus to Muhammad to Marx and stuff like that. She goes, if you look at what they actually said while they were alive, like before their ideas were put into practice and, you know, corrupted and power corrupts and all that stuff that you said, if you look right from the beginning, their ideas had some deeply, deeply uh, revolutionary, you might say, I guess if you're saying it in a nice way or uh, disgusting. If you like, like Jesus said specifically, I have not come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. I came to divide father from son, mother from daughter. You know, all like, and then she says, you know, and right in Marx, there is a kind of cold bloodedness in that that's baked right into that analysis. Yeah, but that, you see, okay, yeah. so here's here's the problem that I have with that whole line of thought, and where I think it's completely wrong. Okay. So one is that it's a very, it's very it's it's idealism versus materialism, okay, and that's where I completely part ways with it, as if somehow the idea is going to be the driving force of of history or of events. That's not the way things work. The way things work is material reality. Materiality uh, uh, determines uh, both consciousness and the way uh, you know human 
human civilization and human events proceed. So it's so that's a very different way of looking at things. You know, Marx. There's Marx had a lot of backward ideas. He was a racist. He, he I think. Somebody told me, I never actually found this, that he called, he characterized Albania as the nation of goat fuckers. He was certainly, <laughs> okay, I don't know about the goat fucker thing. I mean, I, I was, I heard that years ago, but, uh, but he was definitely an anti-Semite, you know? So, I mean, he had these, and, he, and you know, there's a, you know, he had these ideas that were, uh, you know, limited by the fact that, you know, he was a, you know, mid, mid 19th century European, somewhat Euro Eurocentric kind of a guy. Okay, he was limited by his own material reality, right? So, but that doesn't, but that, the, the question is, is with Marxism, is to what extent is Marxism a useful tool to understanding the way uh, things work? And is it a useful tool in uh, struggling uh, to, you know, make things better? I think there's, I think there is some value in that. I think that there's a lot of Marxism or, a, you know, there is some, there are some aspects of Marxism that, um, that are flawed, but I think that the idea of class struggle is a valid is a valid concept, and I think that idealism has absolutely nothing, you know, this this to you know to offer. Um, I mean, that's where you know, like in, in terms of say the current state of the anti-racist struggle, you know, you have these people that are like, well, you know, these people, these liberals who say, well, you know, we need to change hearts and minds. Well, you know, they've been working on hearts and minds for fucking decades, man. And there's still, you know, <laughs> massive institutionalized racism. What you need to do is dis is dismantle the social structures, the real the real material social structures that 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 uh, enforce and uh, reinforce and continue and perpetuate racism. You you need to say you need to fundamentally change the way you know society is structured. It, you know, because you could talk hearts and minds, you know, forever. You could sit around in that Obama, you know, circle singing Kumbaya and you ain't going to change nothing. But yeah, I, I, had a, I had an argument with somebody the other day. Where, yeah. You know, you, when you have that situation where you, you just, you get to that, that uncomfortable moment in a conversation where you realize, okay, I think we're like talking past each other. You know, I had that moment the other day where I, I said, I, I was making a very similar argument to what you just said. And I, I said, to this uh, to this friend of mine, we were arguing about the whole idea of cancel culture, and I said, "Well, I think cancel culture, to the extent that it exists, uh, you know, in, in a reality as opposed to just the foxiverse like imagination, but like to the extent to which it's a real thing, it's largely a function of the decline of unionization." I said, "Because you know, like I'm a unionized employee, so if if a, a very small, highly motivated interest group." decides to that they don't like what I'm saying about uh, Israel Palestine or they don't like what I'm saying about you know XYZ that they want to like get me fired uh, they're gonna I have a union at my back that has got my back and is going to and it is gonna fight for me and unless I have done something really horrible to endanger like you know the the young people in my class is like or something you know illegal, basically, uh, they're going to have my back, even if they disagree with me. And that is way more like, and so a lot of what they're talking about in terms of cancel culture is is really just uh, you know this epiphenomena that is highlighting a deeper class issue, which is that 
the decline of unionization has left a lot of workers very vulnerable to the whims of their employers well, for and sure. to interest groups, right? For sure. And she, and, she, didn't, yeah. she didn't get that. But I wanted to just circle back just a second to what you said about, about you know, idealism versus materialism. You know, 15% of Ukraine was, was killed or forcibly starved to death. That wasn't a material thing. That was very much an idea. The idea of of a kulak, which was a complete bullshit construction. I mean, like kulak, it just it was like this elastic word that that very quickly meant like fucking nothing. It just meant like people that we don't like, you know. And and they, those people, most of those people died as a result, not of some sort of uh, you know grassroots material forces shaping history. They died because of an idea. Okay, like so a wait really, a really so how did, how did, let's, let's take a let's dissect that a little bit. So how did that actually happen? You know, who actually, you know, or you know, we're talking about forced collectivization, right? But that's part of it. But it's right. like Sosanetsin so right. says, so, you know, we were so like in his uh, what he writes later on, he says, you know, he's thinking back after all mm-hmm. of his time in the gulag, he's thinking back to things that he participated in when he was younger and he's feeling unbelievably guilty. And he said, you know, for instance, he goes, I remember, you know, being completely uh, fired up and totally like, you know, fuck those kulaks. It doesn't matter. And, and I knew that I knew perfectly well, everybody did that. A lot of them were completely innocent and didn't deserve that. But the idea was that, okay, this is like, we have our teams and you're on team Kulak. And so like, fuck you. Even if you maybe are individually totally blameless and didn't do anything to deserve this disgusting fate that's being had because of the member of the group that you're in, you deserve it anyway. That's an idea. That's idealism. It may be like a dark version of idealism. Hold on a second. It's idealism carried out by a, uh, a Stalinist bureaucracy at a certain period of time that had a certain, um, you know, interest of its own, which was to preserve its own position and power. So, you know, and, 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 and so they develop an ideology or they, they create an ideology to basically, uh, I mean, I, you know, to basically, you know, justify this, you know, crazy sort of, you know, the third period is full of all kinds of crazy ideas that Stalin had um, and that were really, really disastrous. So yeah, you're, you, there is, but there, but there is a, and so there is a kind of dialectic between ideas and materiality. But materiality is driving the bus because Stalin's got to protect his police apparatus, and he's got to make sure that he's further to the left than Trotsky, because the because he's afraid as he's as he's consolidating his power that Trotsky is going to start looking pretty attractive to people again. You know, Trotsky was the leader of the. Uh, of, of the uh, Petrograd Soviet, he was the uh, leader of the um, uh, of the um, of the Red Army, uh, who defended uh, Russia against um, against uh, the West and, and and the Whites. I mean, so and, and so the the, the third the third period and all that craziness that uh, Stalin attempted there had a direct and also the 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 consequences of the of the of the counter revolution itself, which created. Um, two things, both, uh, you know, mass agricultural shortages and, you know, enforced the 
enforced the the um, not enforced not the right word, but made possible the ascent of Stalin. Right, because if it hadn't been the 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 intense economic pressure asserted on you know by the um, uh, you know asserted on the, on the on the Soviet people, Stalin would not necessarily have had all of that bureaucratic. Uh, you know, power base. He would not have had all. They wouldn't have needed police to keep the breadlines in order. So all of this stuff really comes out of you know a combination of scarcity, you know, material scarcity, uh, political um, strategy, and so on and so forth. So those are all what I would call material forces. Yeah, I mean, you know, ideologies emerge to justify people's political behavior, good or ill. But they're not, it's not that it's not the ideology that's driving the bus over there, in my yeah. opinion. Well, I realize I I there's so many other things that I want to ask you, and I but I, I realize we're, we're we had a great gone, we've got it. But yeah. but I wanna end I wanna end with with uh, with this because on a on a kind mm-hmm. of a high note, I guess, um, or a positive note. Where do you see the the future of the labor movement and of like, do you, I mean, you know, people say, uh, a lot of people say it's, it's somebody like AOC or, I mean, what do you see? It's not AOC. The, 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 what I think is it's not an individual. It's never an individual. Okay. It's never some charismatic leader, some messianic figure that's going to come through and save everybody's ass. It's everybody's got to save everybody's collective ass. So I, what I see, that there are impulses in the labor movement that I see that are very promising in the States. I don't know if this is happening here, but, but uh, in the States, like the teachers, the teachers unions from West Virginia to Chicago to Los Angeles have been organizing very, very effectively. And they've been organizing in some non, interesting, non-traditional ways where they are uh, creating bonds of solidarity with their communities. And where they're not, where there, where there are struggles, not just around economic issues or uh, or working co- or necessarily working conditions, but they're trying to get more, um, uh, you know, more uh, social workers in schools, more psychologists in schools, uh, more nurses in schools. They're trying to reverse the entire or a lot of the um, post Reagan, particularly in Los Angeles, post Reagan era. You know, he was governor of Los Angeles once, uh, you know, uh, cutbacks uh, in the school system. And I can tell you a lot about the school system because my kids went to the L.A. public school system. It is a disaster. So by by doing that, by by broadening the labor struggle to include um, uh, the needs of the community and actually building those, you know, the, those bridges of solidarity, that's where the future labor movement is. Um, and maybe there's, you know, the old, you know, traditional styles, style of unionism. Obviously, it needs to change because basically it's been eliminated. I mean, it doesn't exist, really. You know, these unions are, the traditional unions are pretty much, except for, you know, certain public sector unions, are pretty much kaput because, you know, uh, North America has been substantially deindustrialized. So there probably has to be, a, 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 you know, a whole bunch of new models uh, created uh, similar, you know, that are that are more creative, like the, um, like you know, the way the uh, LA Teachers Union has been has been operating. Okay, you know, solidarity is the key, right? And the other thing, one of the most important movements I believe today, social movements today, is Black Lives Matter, 
And not to say that the leadership of Black Lives Matter isn't problematic. You know, there's certain splits in Black Lives Matter where which are more militant than others. You know, but in general, the 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 struggle against police brutality is uh, you know is today to me one of the most important social movements. And if Black Lives Matter and a revitalized labor movement can work together, you know, um, you know, there's a there's a possibility for some real quote progress unquote. One of the big ironies of that that conflict, I think, is that you you have the movements sort of tying in with a lot of kind of social justice movements and, and labor movements and all these different things, but they're going against. Um, law enforcement, which is, you know, <laughs> say what you will about like, you know, there's, it's one of the most effective unions. <laughs> it's one of the biggest success Yeah, well, stories. Here's, here's one thing. Police, the police unions. Are, let me, let me just, let me just yeah. interject. Let me just interject. The police unions need to be kicked the fuck out of the labor movement. Okay. Now I know under, under, um, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, they have a right to organize and they have a right to function as a, quote, union within this within the strictures of the of the NLRA. This is in the United States. And I guess the same thing is true in Canada. But the labor movement needs to the needs to basically reject them as a legitimate part of the workers movement, because how do you have how do you how do you include people in your movement who are there to break your picket lines? Who are there to escort scabs if you go on strike? You know, the, the police. I, I think most people in the labor movement uh, don't really have much to do with with the uh, the police unions. They don't have like I don't think you know. So I don't think that's a problem. I don't think there needs to be a break. I think the break is is already there. I'm just saying. I just find it one of the strange ironies that part of what makes the police you know so effective is actually that they have, they are actually sure, they very effective yeah they have sure. very strong unions and i you know I, I teach a lot of my former students are cops and in law enforcement here in quebec and and they you know the way that they their unions their union leadership say what you want about like their goals and stuff like that they're really good at actually defending the interests of their members in ways that a lot of other union uh, people could maybe take some notes, you know, and say like, wow, that's like, well, maybe we should do that too, you know, like, and, you know, but they, I just find that, that kind of a crazy yeah, situation. But I where, mean, yeah. I mean, there's a kind of weird irony in it, but, and uh, they may, they, they're very successful in defending, you know, uh, cops who uh, kill people for and deny people due process, you know, they're, they're very good at that. And, uh, um, they're very good at uh, strike breaking and they're very good at uh, beating kids over the head when they're demonstrating for um, for lower tuition fees and stuff. And, you know, and they stick together and they have a gang mentality. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't have the same intimate feel, even though I've lived here for over 20 years for the, the police that I did in the States. But in the States, like I'll tell you, in Los Angeles, the police operate like a gang, like a street gang. So they have a high degree of solidarity that is sort of fundamental to their um, to their daily survival. And they can carry that solidarity, that internal solidarity in over into their unions where what are they there's where they have these, what do they call them? You know, um, 
codes, uh, you know, codes of silence and so on and so forth. Yeah. I remember first time I encountered the idea that you just mentioned was I think in, in my twenties I read Mike Davis's book City of Courts, and oh, his yeah, description, yeah. and, and his description that just completely blew my mind when I first read that book. Where, where he basically said, uh, "Okay, if you just take a very materialistic view of of let, let let's look at L.A. as being uh, a, a bunch of territory." where there are certain very lucrative markets and whoever can control those markets can, you know, have a lot of power and make a lot of money. And, and he just looks at the LAPD as yet another gang that controls certain controls, the drug trade prostitution uh, controls like certain markets in the territory. And don't look at them as being, if you stop thinking about them as being, police just think of them as being okay there's the bloods the crips the lapd and they each have different corners that they control in different areas and that is, what a crazy like that's, when you that's think actually, of that's and i and i read city of courts way back in the day i wish i still had a copy of it but um i think i uh, left it in la to be <laughs> to be honest <laughs> The um, but uh, that is the reality of it, and I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, um, de- dealing with uh, LAPD or Culver City PD or the LA Sheriff's Department, uh, which is the worst of the worst, the, the whole bunch of them. Um, yeah, I mean, they they operate like they're gangsters, and they have that uh, mentality, but they but they operate with the protection of the state, whereas the Crips and the Bloods don't, and um, yeah. you know. But there's uh, they make their accommodations and uh, selectively choose to, um, you know, they have their gang, their gangsters who have the ability to legitimately crack down on their own competitors. You know, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty wild when you think about it that way. But yeah. anyway, this has been like so much fun. I knew it would be. We're gonna have to get you on. Uh, like another time because there's like I, I have a list here that I didn't even get to the half of the questions. That okay, well it was you. cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, it was great talking to you. You know, you're 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 a very interesting, thought provoking person, and it, it's a pleasure. All right. Well, t- take care. Okay. Talk you to you too. soon. Yep. Bye bye.